You're listening to Teach, Think, Treat, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. This podcast is for healthcare professionals and students about teaching and learning in a busy clinical setting. Whilst our setting is a tertiary paediatric hospital, our experiences and challenges are shared by many professionals and students in other clinical environments. Hello, my name's Steve Lacey and I'm the Allied Health Education Fellow in the RCH Education Hub. I also work as a tutor radiographer in the hospital's medical imaging department. For professionals and students across healthcare and indeed all facets of science, research is ever-present. It all begins when we want to know something, but its results set a basis for how we go about our work in healthcare and allows us to continually build from that. Many listeners out there will have already done some sort of research, but some may be very new to the whole process, and let's be honest, it's a very big process, and others may want to get involved in research but really have no idea where to start. Today I'm joined by three PhD students who have been through the research washing machine a few times. So our first guest is Yasmin Mehmed. Uh, she is a study coordinator and clinical trial coordinator through the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, or MCRI as we're going to call it today. And she's currently also a PhD candidate through the University of Melbourne, looking at the relationships between cognitive development and mental health in children. Welcome, Yasmin. Thanks, Steve. Our second guest is Sarah Giles. Sarah's research background is in mental health, and she has recently completed a PhD investigating the role of obsessive compulsive traits in eating disorders at the University of Melbourne. She works as a research assistant at MCRI and the University of Melbourne, investigating the mental health needs of young people with childhood onset disabilities. Welcome, Sarah. (laughs) Thanks, Dee. It's nice to be here. And our last guest, but not our least one, is Douglas Russell. Douglas is a senior researcher at the Australian Catholic University in the Institute of Child Protection Studies and is a PhD candidate here at MCRI and the University of Melbourne researching neurocognitive development and its association with sex hormones. Welcome, Douglas. Thanks, Steve. Oh, God. I'm just astounded by what you three do here. I actually feel a little bit small as a result of that, to be honest. (laughs) So we've got a very massive, diverse group with us today. So I'm sure you have lots of different information that you can kind of bring to the table today, and there's so much to talk about when it comes to research. So let's just get right to it. There's already the word research in the title of MCRI, and MCRI is one of the RCH campus partners. Can you give us a rundown of how research works across the campuses, Douglas? Yeah, I can definitely try. Um, MCRI is a fantastic place to be doing research because it's not just MCRI that you're involved with. So uh, the research that we do here, as you pointed out, is also done with campus partners like the Royal Children's Hospital here in Melbourne and also the University of Melbourne. So together they form what's known as the Melbourne Children's Campus, and that's where researchers in the Department of Paediatrics do their work. So it's great because we get the opportunity to work really closely with clinicians and patient groups and things like that. So that makes research here at MCRI a really great thing to be involved in. Yeah, fantastic. And just to add to that, Douglas and I are actually enrolled in our PhDs through the Department of Paediatrics. So as the Department of Paediatrics is located in MCRI, which is also co-located within the Royal Children's Hospital, we have one of the best environments to carry out research. Yeah. So at MCRI, we are set up for both clinical and lab-based research. We work alongside health professionals from the Children's Hospital and also academics from the university, which really enables us to have access to a range of patient populations, clinical data and clinical expertise. And I have a feeling what we're going to get out of this podcast is that there's a really big difference between your clinical-based and your lab based research. And I kind of am a bit more familiar with the clinical side of things, but not necessarily so much with the lab side of things. 
So let's kind of start with someone who comes to you and just says, I want to do research. And that's all they say. <laughs> what, what advice can you give them from the beginning and how can they get involved? Yeah, it's interesting you say uh, they put it so blankly because I think that's often kind of the starting point that people come at it from. They're not really sure what's going on or kind of how to get involved. And it's something that colleagues and other students from undergrad um, who are kind of curious about research or they want to maybe start research, but they're not sure. I think for the first part, I would really encourage people to kind of reach out and express their interest. So if they're a student, maybe that's with a lecturer or a, a tutor that they know, that can be a really important way for them to get connected. But I think definitely for clinicians who are located within um, the campus, reaching out to sort of people within their department who are doing research, that can be a really easy way to get involved. Is it better for someone to come and say, I want to do research, I have a research idea, or is it better to just go, can you give me a research idea? Yeah, that's a that's a hard question. Um, I think there's probably two schools of thought. I think that if you have a question that you're not sure about and you want to know more about, it's a good starting point to maybe look into sort of um, your institution's hub and see what kinds of research they're doing. So, for example, if your question was about physiotherapy and sort of how to do this for a specific population, maybe seeing what research is coming out of the physiotherapy department. But if you're someone who's like, I, I really, I don't know what I don't know. Are you working on any research projects that I could link in with? That's also a really um, a good approach to get kind of involved in a research project, but not be kind of responsible for creating something for research. Right. Okay. I know that there are some places, particularly with university students and that, where the universities say, here are a bunch of research topics. Yeah. You can choose which one you want to do and kind of go out and do it. But it might also be related to whether the student should actually come up with their own idea in a way and then almost use their their connections, I guess, to try to figure out the best way to kind of go about that research. Yeah, definitely. I think there's both approaches are very common and I think both are good for different reasons. That if you're someone who knows you want to kind of get put a toe in the water for research, but you're not sure what it's going to look like, that can be a really nice starting point to just say, hey, what research are you doing on sleep that I could be involved in and kind of just put your hand up and see what they're doing. And then maybe that's a springboard to kind of carve out your own ideas. Yeah. Um, so that's really great advice, Sarah. And I actually started thinking about getting into research when I was in the final year of my undergrad, which I think is fairly common for some people out there. And I definitely remember feeling really overwhelmed. So if you are wanting to know a bit more about different kinds of research you can get involved with, you might want to maybe consider doing an honours year or maybe a master's or a PhD like Douglas and I. But I remember at the end of my final year of undergrad, I did attend a number of research expos, which is something that they commonly do um, every year. So different institutes and hospitals, um, their departments, they'll run different research expos, sort of giving you a rundown of all the different research projects that they have on offer, which I really recommend that you attend and sort of get to know a few different people and what research that they they have on offer. And when you say that, are you talking about specific topics that people can come and research? Yeah, that's right. So they'll have a specific topic of research, which they'll be sort of advertising through like different posters and you can sort of go around and speak to all different clinicians and researchers about their research project and figure out whether you think it's something you'd be interested in doing. Yeah. Um, and then there is also a formal application process after that, obviously, if you wanted to apply through your university. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that they say when, when thinking about doing a PhD is, you know, you really have to love the topic you're going to be studying because you're going to be with it for sort of three and a half or more years. 
and you may hate it afterwards. Hey, well, very <laughs> much so, you know. And, and, but again, one of the things that a lot of people might think about research is, you know, if they come in and do a PhD on a particular topic, that, that that's their topic for for the rest of their career. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think my example, because I didn't like Yasmin go straight into a PhD from honours. I got an undergraduate degree in teaching and went and was a primary school teacher for 10 years, then did a master's and then sort of got into research through, through that sort of pathway. Yeah. But I've spent five years working on um, child safeguarding research. So I, I've kind of got these two research worlds at the moment. One where I'm looking at child safeguarding in organizations after the Royal Commission back in 2017. And, um, and now I've got this work that I'm looking at cognition and sex hormones here at MCRI. So there's potential for crossover even, you know, my brain's already sort of going, oh, hold on, I could look at what happens, what are the effects of sexual abuse on people's developing cognitive, cognitive functions and things like that. Mm. Or I might end up, you know, sticking to one or switching completely. So you don't necessarily have to stick with what you want. And, um, and there's lots of different avenues to, to get involved. You, you know, you can go and do a few years work as a clinician or as a practitioner of some kind, you know, there's lots of research in regards to, you know, a lot of us are looking at adolescence and development and things like that. So that focus there, that background that I had from teaching and that experience was really useful because I know child development from having worked with children. Yeah, right. Okay. Yasmin, where did you kind of start out with yours? Yeah, so I definitely, um, in my last year of my undergrad, I did take up a course um, subject which involved of doing an internship position here at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. So I was based within the Melbourne Children's Trial Centre. And sort of if you are in your last year of your undergrad, I would really recommend you take up sort of a volunteer or internship position. So through my position here at the Trial Centre, I, I still work here to this day as a clinical trial coordinator, but I was connected to a child psychiatrist who was doing mental health research and this was really how I found the research project that I wanted to do by um, interviewing him and speaking to him. I mean, I did mention the research expos previously, but there, those aren't the only research projects that are out there on offer. You can find your own research project. It's really just about speaking to the right people and getting to know people out there. Um, and most of the time, people are really open to having a conversation. So just email some departments, email people that you think sound really interesting they're more than willing to have a conversation with you. Yeah, you're right. That is a really important thing, I think, is just connecting to the right people. For our listeners who actually are from the children's campus, what can they do what, what, in terms of getting into the research? Yeah, I think for our campus partners, as um, Yasmin kind of alluded to, that kind of being brave and reaching out is a really helpful way to kind of get connected. So people who are in your department and things like that. But for individuals, um, we have a kind of a network across MCRI and University of Melbourne and the Children's where we kind of bring together all the resources so we can make the most of our research infrastructure, but also the access to the kind of clinical populations um, really easily so we can kind of maximise that clinical research translation. So we have a research hub. So it's the research hub at Melbourne Children's. And that has a lot of helpful information for people who are unsure maybe who's the right person, because I think often that can be a bit of a barrier for people. So we have themes um, as broad as um, sort of mental health or immunology. There's a, a research lead allocated for each clinical theme, and their job is basically to build capacity in researchers or students who are keen to get involved. And they're a really great starting point if you are interested in learning more about what you can do in the hub for research. Which type of students are we referring to here? I think students, like I would really, I guess from university, undergraduate level onwards, I would encourage if people have an interest in research, there's so many opportunities for people to volunteer. 
in terms of your level experience might dictate the level of involvement that you can have if you're someone who's quite junior, maybe the types of roles that you can do might be different. But for example, if you're I'm working with someone in the neural tube defects clinic and they were just sort of interested in learning a little bit more about research, they're physiotherapy by background. So we're just co-designing a survey for them to give to families because they know that's something they want to do but weren't really sure how to do it. So I feel like there's a lot of hubs and research themes that have capacity to help the kind of the existing infrastructure for the health services to carry out research. From what we've been talking about so far, a lot of it sounds like your real your higher end research and you know your PhDs and, yeah. and things like that. Whereas me coming from an imaging background where we're almost 100% clinical, yeah. we have to think like a little bit lower down and we've got yeah. to think a little bit more about like what's just one research question that we can just answer and how do we actually go about that as well. Yeah, I think that's definitely sort of what the research hub's role is. It's to kind of build capacity for people who are just like, I think I want to do research, but I have no idea what this actually means. Mm -hmm. So if you're in that boat, I think that's a really good starting point. And there's also sort of professional development things that you can do within the research hub if you're like, I want to get upskilled in like, what is a research question? Like, how do you even define that or operationalize a study? That's really helpful. But also there's even things that you can do in terms of if you just want to be informed about research that's going on, there are newsletters that you can sign up for just so you can kind of just get a sense of what's happening at the Institute without having to maybe commit yourself entirely to going down the path of research. Yeah. There's also lots of, um, lots of other groups sort of not necessarily connected to the Melbourne Children's Campus. So a recent example for me was I went to the Students of Brain Research dinner recently. I bumped into a lecturer from Melbourne University, but who's in the psychology department. And even though all of us here kind of have that mental health, cognitive, you know, cognitive um, and psychology background, because we're in the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Sciences, we're a bit removed from, from psychology. We, we follow each other on Twitter and, and we'd retweeted things, but we'd never met in person. So we met in person. And then a couple of weeks later, I get a direct message on Twitter from him saying, oh, I've got someone who's kind of interested in, in research sort of in a similar space to you. Who should they go to? You know, just that networking and there's, there's lots of different societies and organizations that, that organize these sorts of things that you don't necessarily need to be totally working in the field. It can mm. just be an interest. And I think that's a really good point, I guess, to summarize like what we've all been talking about that I think sometimes, particularly for clinicians, because I'm someone who kind of wanted to be a clinician. I never wanted to do research. And then I kind of found my way into research. So I feel like a bit of an imposter yeah, in too, some ways. Too. Yeah, exactly the same. Yeah. And I, I think like there's maybe, and I had this perception, which I guess is why I'm sharing, because listeners also have that perception that researchers and academics live in this kind of ivory tower of research. Whereas I think the reality is that they often really want to engage with clinicians and students and get people involved and build capacity in healthcare systems to be involved in research and utilize the resources that we have but there's often this like disconnect between those two systems. So if you are a clinician or a student who's interested in research, I think I'd really encourage you to reach out. And I've never had a negative experience reaching out to different researchers of all different levels of seniority. They've always been very encouraging and very exciting to hear from someone who's like, oh, I like your research. They're always like, oh, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> it's it does, always a nice experience. It does feel at times that you do need to bridge that gap a little bit between yeah. the research and, and the reality of the clinical environment Absolutely. as well, I think, too. You're right with the whole networking thing. Like you never underestimate the power of networking and that. And the same thing happens. This is why I like to go to big national and international conferences and that because the amount of network that you can do in, in a one weekend is just unbelievable. This is the question that always comes up when we're talking about research terminology and that's the difference between qualitative and quantitative research. I'll start off with a simple sort of definition of the two different ones. So qualitative research can be said to be more about words while the quantitative research is more about the numbers. 
but that is a simplification. So each of them has different methodologies that we might use to collect data um, and to answer a research question. So that's where there's similarities between the two. They both have the same goal, answer a research question and use data to do it. But qualitative research is often associated with things like focus groups and interviews where you'll be maybe doing recordings of people having conversations. I've run some focus groups with children and young people where we've put up a sort of a graph with an X and a Y axis and kind of asked them to plot their thoughts, which are on post-it notes. So it can mm. be really interactive. We had to pivot that onto an online version. So we had to find an online whiteboard that had post-it notes and things like that. Paper's coming out soon. Shameless plug. I was just going to say shameless. That's a lot. The paper is out. Yeah, really happy with that. The quantitative research is more about collecting numerical data. So how many people have a diagnosis of something, how many people, you know, have a certain risk factor uh, or a protective factor, uh, things like that. That's the kind of quantitative research is is more likely to use things like randomized control trials and and types of study designs that we see um, in, in a lot of the work that maybe comes out of the Melbourne Children's Campus. Any other terminology ones that you guys can think of that you always I'm get confused? Going to throw Yasmin confused. in the deep end here and do what is a randomized control trial because people I always was thinking ask me that. that. Yeah. Okay. So the way I would most simply explain it is it's like tossing a coin. So, for example, if you are having an interventional trial, you would flip a coin, and most of the time it's fifty-fifty whether you'd be assigned an intervention or a placebo. Right. For example, if it's a drug. You know, if there's a new drug on the market or or potentially a drug where we're thinking there's a, a different benefit of it for a certain group of people. They've got some kind of pain, but we don't know if it works with children and young people. So we want it, the, the best type of study design that gets us the best results, sort of with the most rigor, would be a randomized control trials. And then at the end of the study, you would compare to see what are the outcomes comparing the group that had the placebo versus the group that had the, the actual drug. The idea behind it being randomized is that you're getting rid of all of what we call the noise. What you might find is that people that choose a certain option, either the control or the placebo, have certain traits that they share. So they might all come from a particular area of Melbourne. If we were doing it in Melbourne, it might be that they are a certain age. So, you know, or or they have parents with certain sort of backgrounds that make them think, oh, no, we need to get onto this quickly. Whereas when you randomize it, you're essentially saying, well, all of those factors are, are now split between the two groups equally. So none of those are going to be the factors that that maybe are affecting the results, saying whether the drugs worked or not worked. Right. I'm going to do a research on whether eating my lunch in the tea room is going to increase my chances of getting COVID. (laughs) There's steps that you need to follow for every institution. What do you think you should consider when doing this kind of research? So there definitely is a process to consider when you are wanting to set up a research project. And this process can often be very long and confusing if you haven't done it before. So I would definitely suggest that you start learning about this process very early on. And it is important to know that this process will be different depending on the type of research you want to do. So my experience is mainly based on clinical research, but just to be aware that lab-based and animal research will be slightly different and Sorry, I can't comment on that. Um, But as a general overview, you will want to think about development. So this involves your protocol writing, thinking about budgeting, and you also want to think about approvals. So this will be your ethics approvals and your departmental approvals, getting things signed off. Right. So if we start talking about the research protocols, I've heard some advice, and that is never try to reinvent the wheel. So find someone who's filled out a research protocol and use that as a template for your own. 
I must admit from personal experience that that is a very good way to go. Would you guys agree? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Protocols aren't fun to write. Don't create more work than you need to. (laughs) Yeah, definitely don't reinvent the wheel. You know, thinking about what you said about eating lunch and in the tea room, you know, and catching COVID. So you could find someone that, that's got a protocol that's, that's looked at that topic or something really similar, like, you know, catching a cold or flu mm-hmm. if you're going in, and you could use that as a basis. But if your research methods are really different, which might be the case, because obviously you, you shouldn't be conducting research that's already been done. So this, the, the protocol you get will be different. If, if they decided to do it quantitatively, going back to that, that sort of idea, where they sort of collected numbers of people who went into the tea room and who didn't didn't catch COVID, that's going to look very different in your protocol compared to someone who's going, well, I'm going to run some interviews and ask people, you know, what their experience was in the tea room and, you know, that sort of thing. So, Because that's, you know, qualitative instead of quantitative. Well, that's right? it. <laughs> so, yeah, you definitely need to think about is borrowing from someone that, that's got something similar or is a template a better option? And there's lots of templates here at the Credo website for MCRI and with other research units as well, and lots of training and, and things like that online on protocol writing. So there's different options. Pick and choose what's best and talk to others and, and again, use that network, I think. Yeah. yeah, definitely agree. You shouldn't be starting from scratch. And as a student researcher, you really shouldn't be responsible for setting up something from scratch. So this is something that should really be a collaboration with a team of people And if you are just starting with an idea, you'll want to start by thinking about sort of what study design is appropriate, what is your research question and your statistical analysis plan. So this all comes together in your protocol. The protocol is really an important document in research. And as Douglas mentioned, there are templates. Um, So Credo, which is our clinical research development office. And I would suggest everyone doing research get connected with Credo at some point. Um, They're a really, really great tool and really great people to work with. So they have a range of templates and they also have workshops which you can attend as well. As another tip, I would also suggest getting connected with the Clinical Epidemiology and Biostatistics Unit, or CBU as we call them, and speak with a statistician. The statistical analysis section of the protocol is often the hardest bit to write if you're anything like me and don't know anything about (laughs) statistics. So they will be able to provide you with some expert advice and guidance here and help you out with writing that section. Yeah, I think that's really important, Yasmin, that you shouldn't feel like at the beginning you need to be an expert in everything. Like don't feel like, oh, I need to be a statistician and I need to be, um, you know, some sort of risk management or data management expert to write a protocol. Like there are so many resources available to help you do good ethical research that you don't need to sort of have all of the skills in every area uh, to do good research. And it's changing. It's changing. So I did my master's 10 years ago and the stats that I learned in my master's, not the stats that I'll be implementing now. I think my advice would be if you're kind of going down this path of starting a research project, the main thing for people to be really clear on is like, what's your research question and kind of like, what do you really want to get out of this? And that's going to really shape sort of your analysis plan, the protocol, how you go about doing it. But just being really concrete about that, I think is something that clinicians and students can kind of have a a good grounding in and can kind of revise with the experienced researchers along the way. But I guess as a starting point, have a clear research question. Yeah. Now, in the state of Victoria, all of the research submissions need to go through the Victorian Research Submissions Group, which is known as the ERM. Can anyone explain what that is exactly? 
I can't because <laughs> I, we don't use the ERM at um, at ACU. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I don't, so what I just said is completely null and void. <laughs> it is, it's, it's not null and void, but it's not necessarily totally accurate. And and I was really surprised. It looks like a great system. We've we've put our ethics application through it and the project that Yasmin and I are working in. But but yeah, at ACU we don't use that. So I don't know why that is. I would need to approach the Human Research Ethics Committee at ACU. We have another platform that we use, so I'll need to defer to one of my wonderful colleagues here. Yeah, so I can definitely try and speak to it a little bit. So through my role as a clinical trial coordinator, I sort of got a lot of experience in doing ethics applications through um, my role there. And I think probably a little unusually to how a PhD student may um, start, they don't usually have that background. So definitely a bit of a learning curve at the start. But in Victoria, ethics applications are submitted through an online portal called Ethics Review Manager or ERM, not to be confused with the EMR, which is the electronic medical yep. record. Um, just a warning that there are a lot of acronyms in research and even I get confused to this day, so you're constantly learning. Yep. Anyway, so if you tend to submit an ethics application to a human research ethics committee. Which is HREC. HREC, yep. correct. <laughs> you will need to set up an account in the ERM portal. And that's very quick to do. However, there is often a bit of a learning curve when it comes to using ERM. So I would suggest watching some of the training videos available online and maybe reading up on the user guide if you need some more specific information. But preparing your ethics application can often be a bit of a daunting process if you haven't done it before. So there are a number of different documents to prepare as part of the application. As a first step, if you don't know anything about this process, I would suggest going to your research ethics and governance office. Have a look at their website first, read about the different application processes and documents. If you are doing participant research, you'll need to write participant information sheets, for example, um, consent forms in plain language. So this is very different to writing scientific papers and you might want some help from someone who has done this before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can also register to attend a workshop by Credo called the Ethics Review Process, and that will give you a rundown of everything involved in an ethics application. Thanks for that. It's a good explanation. And I think that, uh, I mean, I have actually used ERM before only mm. once, and full disclosure, I hated it. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it because I, no one had shown me how to do it before, and you you click on Next and you think you're just about at the end and then another set of questions comes in and then you click on next again and another set of questions come in and I'm just like, God, will this ever end? And I, yeah. I, I literally spent about a whole day just going through an ARM just to submit something that was a fairly simple research project as well. Now you have to submit it to an ethics committee. What happens next? So after you've prepared your ethics application and submitted this through ERM, there will be a review process done by the Human Research Ethics Committee and you'll most likely receive some queries back about your application. Don't freak out. This almost always happens. I don't think I've heard of a ethics application go through without getting some queries back. No, me neither. <laughs> so this might involve making some modifications to your documents as well as responding to the queries. But after this, you'll resubmit to the ethics office. And if they are satisfied with your responses, you'll then receive an ethics approval certificate. So this basically means that your research has been given the green light and is ethically approved to go ahead. But there is actually a separate process that also occurs alongside this. So I've mentioned the ethics review process, but there's also the governance approval process, which is a little bit separate to this. Yeah. 
So depending on the type of application, um, the governance approval can co-occur with your ethics application. If you haven't heard of governance before, this is essentially everything that you need to prepare for your site to be approved at a site level. So things like contracts and getting departmental sign-off from like the head of the departments, that's all involved in a governance um, approval process. And also just making sure the site like has capacity to yeah. carry out this research that so you're not saying like, oh, we're just going to have 10 elephants on level two for this study. And they're like, you can't fit an elephant. <laughs> 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 elephant like, like, elevator? Like, that's fine. But how yeah. are you going to get it up to level so, yeah, two? As Yasmin said, I think like that was a bit of a, a learning curve for me when I first did research. So I was like, no, I have ethical approval. Like it's all ethical. It's all good. And then the site's like, yeah, but it's going to affect us if you're here doing research. I was doing it at a clinical service for eating disorders. And, you know, they're like, well, is this going to impact their group therapy? What times are you going to come? You can't come at mealtimes. Yeah, um, right. So it's all about like how it actually is practically going to work. It's all very good and well for it to be ethical and have a great protocol. But if it might impact the service that you're doing it at, they need to know that and they need to plan accordingly. So I think yeah, governance right. is a really important aspect of research. Yeah, I've never heard of that before and that makes perfect sense as to why you would need to do it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So once you do have your ethics and governance approval, theoretically you should be able to start your research project. However, as a side note, it is important that you actually have the people and equipment prepared, like Sarah mentioned, and also trained to get started with the research. This could potentially take some time before you're actually ready to recruit and enroll your first participant. So that's a really good question because next we've got to think about which way we actually do it. Do you actually get everything ready to go so your troops are all lined up on the, on the front line and you're just waiting for the ethics approval before you just go, right, go? Or do you get the ethics approval before you even start building up your army? I wouldn't suggest doing the latter. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, one of the other things we've had to think about for our project that Yasmin and I are working on is that it's not just the single ATRIC approval that we need. We we said in our protocol we're going to go into schools to collect data because we we need a really large sample of children and young people. Yeah. We want it to try and be a representative sample. So therefore, one of the best ways of doing that is to access children and young people at school. We need to make sure that it's beneficial for them. And 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 that kind of feeds into what I'm going to talk about, which is essentially that just because the ATREC that have approved the project and said, yes, that's an ethical project, say, yes, you can do that, doesn't mean we can start rocking up to schools and knocking on the doors and going, oh, hi, we've got approval to do the study. Because there might be some other approvals that you need to get. So, for example, mm-hmm. if you want to work in Catholic schools, you need to go to the Catholic diocese that those schools fall under and make sure you've got approval from them. If you want to go into public schools, you need to go into the Department of Education and, and make an application there. Yeah, And you can say, yes, we've got ethical approval sort of to conduct the project. But that kind of, I don't know, they, they sort of talk about it as an ethics one, but, but it's kind of, it's half ethics and half governance to an, an extent. So we've had to think about that as well. So Yasmin and I have had ethics approval for oh, six months or so <laughs> yeah. for, our, for the project we're working on together, but we haven't started collecting data yet because we haven't got those approvals from, from some other groups. And, and again, COVID, schools were like, no, no, no one's coming in to do any research because we're busy trying to work out how to teach kids when they're staying at home and things like that. So, you know, timelines and things like that can always get thrown out for, yeah. for reasons just beyond your control. It sounds funny because you're getting ethics approval but when you go to actually do it and they're not, they, they don't know that you're coming, then that's an unethical thing to do. Yeah, <laughs> so. exactly. <laughs> Rocking up to surveying children. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. I mean, yeah, even, even then the schools that we contact to say, oh, we're conducting this project, we'd love to 
get, you know, get some of the children, young people in your school involved and there's benefits for them and there's benefits for you. Mm. It's still a cold call to those schools because we've got the approval through the department. My work at the Institute of Child Protection Studies is, is a bit different. We offer a, a survey as part of a research project that people can come and that schools or other youth serving organizations can get involved in. So they often contact us. So if they've heard about the work we're doing and they want to see if their school or their you know, sports club is a safe place, mm. they can take part in our research project and it costs them. So it's an industry funded project as opposed to sort of one of the big ARC or NHMRC grant type pieces of work. But we often have it there. So there's lots of different ways that you know research happens and things like that. And I think that's one of the things I'm excited about, about having had an experience where it's really different to, to what I'm experiencing here. MCRI. Then comes the analysis part after that. Are there any tips about how we can make that a fairly quick process? Because that's obviously, you know, once you've kind of got your data, you're kind of, you're very excited. You're like, all right, now I've got the data. I want to publish it and that kind of stuff. And then how do we actually get that done quickly? Yeah, it's a good question. And I, I don't know, it really depends upon the nature of the project. But I think broadly speaking, there are periods of time where you're, as Douglas was saying, like you can't kind of progress maybe the data collection, but you can progress aspects of the research project. So let's say you're waiting around to get approval to go to a school to collect data. What you can do is make sure your data capture tool, so how you're going to record the data that you get from the students in the school, you can make sure that's really clear and really efficient. And then you can start, I guess, building those tools so they're ready to go and hit the ground running once you get that final approval. And that that can also translate really clearly. Okay, so we know we're going to um, get, you know, let's say we're going to measure their working memory and we're going to measure their processing speed. How are we going to look at working memory and processing speed in our analysis? Like what type of analysis is going to be appropriate for that? So you can start planning down the track mm. and you can start preparing things ready. So I would say like if there's a, a moment of time where you think, oh, there's just another roadblock along the way of research, which there will be, that's just the nature of research, yeah. uh, that you can start preparing for a data analysis section by being really concrete about what are your kind of core outcomes and how you're going to kind of, what we talk about in research a lot is this idea of operationalizing it. So it's a very broad term to say we want to look at like cognition in children. It's like, well, what does that mean? Like what aspects of cognition, what measures are you going to use, define cognition and how are you going to analyze the relationships between different aspects of cognition? So being really clear about the outcomes, I think, can be helpful to speed up that data analysis part. In, in a way with your analysis as well, you've kind of got to know when you're setting up your, your research protocol what it is that you actually want to analyze. So yeah. by the time the data actually comes out, you should be just like, well, I know I want to analyze this, this, and this, because that's how I set it all up. But then obviously some surprises get thrown in there every now and then too. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and then what about publication? Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, look, publications, one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is that publications with sort of the be-all and end-all and, and researchers are expected to you know, get publications out there. And I've heard of stories of where, you know, universities would sort of pay rises and promotions based on the number of publications. So the researchers clocked on and were like, well, okay, well, if we need more publications, then we'll just start adding each other to our publications. So uh -huh. then the universities are like, oh, hold on, that's, that's not what we meant. So they started going, if there's one author, we'll give you one point. If there's two authors, we'll give you half a point. If there's four authors, we'll give you a quarter of a point each. Oh, really? so, yeah, yeah. Publication was really important, but I think one of the things I'm excited about with the research that, that I'm seeing coming out and things like that is, is the varied outputs that we create. So it's not just about doing a peer-reviewed publication. It's also about, you know, are you doing a report for the school or, you know, the, the clinical group that, that were involved in your research? Are you producing, you know, some 
outputs, some infographics to, to share your findings on Twitter or LinkedIn and things like that. Part of the reason for this change is recent push globally for impact. What impact is that research on cognition and you know, processing speed in children? How does that actually help kids at school to, to improve their cognition, learning and you know, have a positive effect? And so making sure we've got all these different ways of measuring the success of our research has, has gone beyond just the peer-reviewed publication. Mm-hmm. But in saying that, you very much kind of look at some of the things that universities like, so how many papers have you published in the last year? Like, oh, one or two. So you've got to balance it, I think. Yeah, I yeah. think that's definitely a big shift within within science more broadly, not just for our disciplines, but just kind of across the um, all the different aspects of research that when you think about publications, the typical person who's going to be reading them is probably another academic because they're the only one who has time to sit at their desk and read through, you know, a 40-page meta-analysis of what the um, outcomes are. Yeah. And as you said, if that's a meta-analysis about teaching strategies to help kids learn better who maybe have lower processing speed, what is the impact of, of these people downloading it or citing this article? So I think that we're broadening our criteria for what we consider as useful knowledge translation because maybe for teachers, what researchers need to be doing is going to schools and providing professional development for teachers or providing them with resources or the Department of Education with resources about this information. So policy, our target audience for publication, really, I think for a lot of people, there's all these paywalls, people can't access it. So it's really just for other researchers. Other people aren't getting the knowledge and that's really not helpful to improve the educational outcomes for young people, for example, or the mental health outcomes, in my case, for the research that I do. Yeah. If you kind of look at, in a bit more of a a clinical sense from a a hospital kind of perspective as well, though, is it what you want when you are releasing research is that you want people who are in in your industry to be, to be reading those types of things, because in some cases, the research could actually change policy. Yes, definitely. And if that's going to be the case, like, you, you know, we might do a research thing here. If we're talking about medical imaging, we might be doing some sort of research here where we're lowering radiation dose for patients. Mm-hmm. Places like Queensland Children's Hospital and Perth Children's Hospital, they're going to be interested in that type of stuff because they want to know how to reduce their own doses of radiation. So they might actually look at that and think, well, you know, how are we going to do that too? So you've actually got to look at the right journals as well and try to figure out exactly where you actually want it to be published, where it's actually going to be read. So there's some journals that are that are open access. So there's no paywall and, and anyone can sort of access them. If there is a paywall, then generally only people who sort of have some kind of affiliation with a, a university or a research institute where the library's paid large sums of money to have sort of, you know, an agreement with the publisher to, to access that material um, can, can be problematic. So um, open access is becoming um, really popular. There are some costs in, for, for the researchers. So again, do we have the money for that from within our grants or institutionally to pay for those sorts of things. And I think I've read recently the U.S. definitely has just put in some U.S.-level federal policies about anything that's funded by the government has to be open access. Yeah. Um, and I think that it was Europe or the U.K. that maybe has also done that as yeah. well. Um, so it's going to be really interesting, I think, to see how that affects publishers and, and, and things like that in regards to their their business model. Because I was going to say, not so good for the publishers, but great for everyone else. Well, exactly, exactly. exactly. The whole process, I think, of, of the research and, and getting all the way through to publication and that is very quite lengthy. And to be honest, no one in their right mind is going to want to do it if there's not going to be much to gain from it and if no one's going to read it. Why would we want to do research and what's the benefit to that individual person? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think it's something that probably all of us spend a lot of time thinking about. And I think that's a really big motivator for me personally to try to think about 
what I can do. I think I said before in terms of wanting to be a clinician, I guess I felt like in that context of that client interaction, I could say, oh yeah, I can make a difference for this one person. And I think that maybe research, sometimes people take a step back further and think like, how could I influence systems more broadly? So I think for me, that was a really big motivator to try to think about how I could make a positive impact on the lives of people uh, by doing research and understanding what their needs are better. I guess my story of getting here, I was in a lecture and we were talking about treatment outcomes for eating disorders. And the lecturer was just kind of going through the statistics, just kind of, you know, just getting us up to speed where we're at. And they said something that just really stuck with me in terms of that, like only 50% of people are going to achieve like a full symptomatic recovery following sort of like best practice guidelines for eating disorders. And I remember just thinking like, what? Like that can't be true. Mm. And I think it just kind of piqued my interest in this and then thinking like, well, what are we missing? Like, what what are we not doing right in our approach to therapy? Like, who's not benefiting? Like, who are those 50%? Like, what are their properties, their kind of characteristics that they don't benefit from the therapies that we're offering them? And I think that that is probably what motivates a lot of clinicians and a lot of students as well when they're sort of thinking about research. For me, that's always just been something I've had. I find that, I guess that's why I want to do the research to your point about like, you know, sometimes it's a really long and arduous process, but I think the pursuit of that kind of why has always been really intellectually fulfilling for me and probably for other researchers as well. Yeah. I'm not dissimilar. I I sort of thought I was going to go down the clinical route, sort of clinical psychology. And um, when I moved back to to Australia, kind of like, right, let's, let's do some applications for sort of combined masters, PhDs and doctorates and things like that. And, um, and then I suddenly was like, oh, hold on, how am I going to pay rent? <laughs> I'm like, oh. So I ended up applying for jobs as well and ended up in the job that I'm in at the moment at the Institute of Child Protection Studies. And so I sort of really fell into research and, and I wasn't mad at it. I was kind of like, this, this is enjoyable. And I've been accused of being a lifelong student, which is <laughs> hopefully why I made you know, a good teacher because you know, I'm so keen on, on helping others learn as much as myself. That clinical route didn't happen for me and I ended up doing research and, and, and I realized not too long ago, I think similar to Sarah, was that I can make maybe even a bigger difference as a researcher because I can influence multiple clinicians in, you know, doing an evidence-based intervention that's going to help all of their clients or patients so I can get a bigger reach. And I'm really happy doing that and really happy to be doing it at this time, as I said, because we really get to think about what's the impact of our research and and where's that going to go. Yeah, and I think if you just think about it simply, there is so much to gain from doing research. So if you put aside all the lengthy processes that are involved at a base level, you are really going to learn so many new skills and develop expertise in your field of research. So everybody who is doing research is contributing so much new knowledge, which will guide other researchers, it will guide other clinicians. And as cliche as it sounds, if you look at the big picture of it, we are actually helping to make a difference in people's lives. So I was motivated to get into research by improving outcomes for people with mental health difficulties. And I would say that if you have a motivation to make a difference, then you should definitely get into research. Yeah, absolutely. Look, it sounds like identifying a problem or a social issue is often a good starting point for a lot of research was your motivation. How can you make sure your research is addressing these problems and will improve the health and well-being of children, for example? Yeah, I think like the example that you gave before about like imaging and radiation, wanting to make sure that there's kind of, I guess, a need for the individual, you know, as Yasmin Douglas have both touched on, I think that that making sure 
the knowledge that we gain from research has an impact that's kind of translatable into how we think about a problem and maybe influence the way that we uh, respond to a problem in terms of like a system approach of like a hospital or a government or policy where research sometimes falls down is we have these really great ideas, but they actually don't translate very well into sort of the practical day-to-day experiences of young people. Let's say we developed a new medical device and it was amazing at uh, treating chronic pain for young people. And it was, you know, this kind of groundbreaking development. It's one thing to have a device that can be really effective for young people experiencing chronic pain, but it's another thing to think about what, how is that going to operate in actual real world settings? So do families know how to use the device? Can they afford to buy the device? Mm-hmm. Do parents can, you know, do they need to be there watching the kid doing it? Is it an hour a day? Is it two hours a day? What families have time for a parent to spend two hours a day sitting by the young person, sort of helping them operate the device? When we don't plan according to our kind of end goal, like sort of what we hope to achieve at the end, really clearly and concretely, we can miss these really um, important aspects. And we know that there's a lot of waste in research, this idea that we create all this knowledge and information and it doesn't translate into the practical day-to-day for people who, let's say, have chronic pain. One of the things that's becoming a useful tool within research is co-design or co-production. Even when you're back writing up your protocol and developing your research idea, is including people for whom your research is aimed at helping. One of the other terms that's getting used a lot is lived experience. Yeah. So there's a lot of push to include people with lived experience through, you know, again, through co-design. And I totally agree that we need to think about how your research will have an end impact when you're setting up your project. But the thing is that sometimes through research, we discover that some things just don't work or aren't beneficial. So for example, you're trialing a drug you might have found that it didn't treat the condition or maybe it was found to be harmful. Or maybe your research failed to recruit enough participants and your endpoint analyses are inconclusive because your sample was underpowered. So these are all risks involved with research, which is why planning is so important prior to starting research. So whilst some research doesn't have a health impact, it will still most likely have a knowledge impact. And with knowledge comes power, as we all know. Uh, It's good to have the knowledge there, though, as it may lead into some sort of health impact with future research. Uh, And it does provide a foundation as well to to build upon. Just taking it back to the the research idea and getting it started, surely you want to know about whether someone has had this research question before. Like, this is obviously something you're going to have to do your own research with beforehand. (laughs) Yes, you need to do some research before you can do some research. So a a literature review is sort of what needs to happen there. And, you know, it it forms a a large part of a PhD thesis is um, a literature review at the beginning of of your sort of the product that you're creating. So you need to know, you know, what do we know about the topic? Has it been investigated? The, The definition of research is that it's generating new knowledge. So it could be that something's been studied before. But again, going back to that idea of different you know, research methodologies and designs, has it been researched in a particular way where we're still lacking some information? Mm-hmm. So you might know that, you know, statistically, yes, that drug or that device does, you know, decrease pain in in people, but actually there's still people coming into the hospital complaining about that that problem. So what's the what's going on? How can we find out? So maybe you need to, you know, find out more from a qualitative point of view and find out what the experience is. So doing a literature review allows you to understand what's been done in the space before, what do we know, and more importantly, what do we not know? Yeah. And then that's where you then sort of go to the next step, which is, okay, let's design a research protocol that can help us to answer that question. Yeah. 
and part of that literature review can then be included in the research protocol so you don't have to reinvent the wheel again. Exactly. That's right. Look, thanks a lot, guys, for taking the time to, to speak with me today about research. I want to get a take-home tip from each of you. Yasmin, start with you. Take-home tip is don't reinvent the wheel. Yep. <laughs> um, speak to people in your group. You're going to be connected to so many different people who know other people with special um, expertise in different areas. So definitely do your research before you do your research <laughs> um, and learn what you need to do plan before you start it. Yep, absolutely. Sarah? I think Yasmin stole like two of them. <laughs> <laughs> Too helpful. Thanks, Yasmin. <laughs> I think my tip would maybe just be more specific to clinicians that you have a wealth in terms of what Douglas was saying before, different types of knowledge. I think clinicians and people kind of in the thick of it with these kind of populations or what they see day to day, their knowledge base from that experiential account, I think is just invaluable. So really value the knowledge that you bring to research as someone who's doing this work day in, day out. And if there's something that you think could be done better or could be done differently, I'd really encourage you to trust that instinct and that gut and follow it through. Yeah. And Douglas? I'm going to go back to the networking and say, if you're interested in speaking to someone about their research, because it's of interest to you, maybe it's an area of, of research you want to get into, network, go to events where that person might be because it's, you know, around their topic area or reach out to them. You know, every paper has got a contact detail for one of the authors. Uh, if you're interested, shoot them an email, say you enjoyed their paper, ask them if they're looking for any support or if, you know, they've got ideas. Yeah. And and we did discuss a few different websites throughout today's podcast as well. So we'll try to include as many of those websites in our show notes as we can. Thanks again to each of you for your contributions to the discussion today. There's so much involved in research and you really need to know these processes it always pays to collaborate and make yourself some research friends so that you don't have to go it alone. Thanks again for the chat, guys. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for listening to Teach, Think, Treat, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast show, Conversation with the Experts, where professionals from the Melbourne Children's Campus provide advice and insights, tips and tricks, and discuss latest research findings on a range of topics.